Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to HodgePod today. And I have a special guest, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is dealing with college basketball in the early 1980s. I am thrilled because I lived in Boston at that time, and I remember those days vividly. And I have today Clayton Truder, who is written a book, and I have ordered the pre-ordered the book, and I cannot wait to get it. And the book is called Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. And uh, Clayton, welcome to my podcast, HodgePod. I'm really thrilled to have you on. Thank you. Rob, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's incredibly flattering to have people in- interested in the book. Well, I am really and, looking And it's also to- very impressive that you got the title of the book correct. I'm still struggling in which the order of the names is. They, they told me to stick Rick Pitino first because he's in the news the most of the three. So that's that's how it ended up that way. Well, it's amazing because when I'm when I'm looking at the book here, uh, the cover is awesome, and and Rick Bettino looks totally different back in the early '80s than he does now. It's hard to believe when you see these coaches when they were young. It's really it's really awesome. When I grew up in Boston in the early '80s, uh, the Celtics were going through their World Championship runs, and uh, we were also having a lot of college basketball back then. So, how did you go about getting the idea for the book Boston Ball? Um, it started when I was in graduate school. I was, I was, I, my dissertation, which became my first book, Loserville, was the the product of what I worked on. And uh, I, I have a history PhD from uh, Boston College, and my dissertation ended up becoming Loserville. And during that time, to amuse myself when I was taking breaks, I'd go to all the different college basketball games in town. I'd go to BU and Northeastern, and I, and I was at BC, so I'd go watch them typically lose at the Connie Forum in this time period. <laughs> and, uh, go over to Harvard and uh, see Tommy Amaker's team. And it occurred to me that uh, at roughly the same time you had coaches that ended up in the Hall of Fame uh, at BC with Gary Williams, not to mention the great Tom Davis who came before him at belongs in the Hall of Fame after him, and also having Calhoun having such a long year at Northeastern. And it struck me that nobody had really written about that in long form before. I'd seen seen references to this before, all these coaches having been there. But um, the combination of those things and also reading John Feinstein's great book, The Champions Club, about having Val Valvano, Dean Smith, and Krzyzewski all in uh, all in North Carolina at the same time inspired me to, to get the idea to uh, write about uh, what was happening in Boston during the 1980s and, and the idea that there was this uh, kind of unknown collection of coaches that were emerging at the same time who go on to become major figures in the sport for the last quarter century or so. Yeah, excellent. And, uh, you know, when you look back, Rick Pitino was at Boston University, Jim Calhoun, Northeastern University, and uh, Gary Williams at Boston College. And Gary Williams replaced Dr. Tom Davis, who went out to Stanford, I remember. Um, he inherited a good team. So what was what was it like uh, researching the book before we get into the uh, some of the details uh, that you can give? Uh, what was it like researching the book? And how many people did you actually interview? Because I'm really interested in that book to research because it took place really during the height of the pandemic i finished mm-hmm. boston ball in roughly i mean not boston ball loserville i finished in roughly july 2020 submitted that to the publisher i was looking for another project and i and i had thought about this boston basketball book before that and the night after i i submitted my um manuscript of loserville i told my agent about the idea of boston ball and he said go with it so i started working on it and we thankfully got a book deal together and over the next 12 to 18 months, I researched the book using relevant newspapers, 
Uh, I got I got access to the newspapers from the schools. Uh, and I and largely the book is being built around interviews because there's a lot of things you just can't get in the box score. You mm-hmm. you want to talk to the people to get a feel for the time and the place. And I did roughly a hundred interviews for the book. And in many ways that kind of it kind of happened on its own. Once I got a core of five or ten people to say yes, many of these teams were still very tight and had close connections to each other. So I talked to a guy who played at BU, for example, and he said Oh, I know these four other guys. Let me give you their phone numbers. Wow! So I would just call those guys up then. So once you got the um, once you once you got things going, and once you showed them, I think that you were, I guess, trustworthy with with the subject matter that they felt comfortable talking to you, and and they vouched for you to their teammates who they obviously cared very much about. That's one of the things that comes quite through in this book. The degree. Uh, I, I guess the very difficult circumstances they often went through together as teammates. Um, w- once you had once you had one of their trusts, it, it helped you get in contact with a lot of these guys. So I, I did most of these interviews in like a four month period. Um, it took me, you know, it took me significantly longer to actually write the book than to do the lion's uh, share of the interviews for it. Wow. So uh, when you look at the coaches, uh, all three coaches that started out in Boston, uh, when I think of uh the three of them, I think of them as relentless, intense, pressing defenses and pounding the pavement as far as recruiting. What did you find out um, about these coaches when they were really pretty much up and comers back then in the early 80s? All good descriptors of them. I mean, these are all incredibly ambitious guys who went out and grabbed for the brass ring to make this happen. I would say both in the case of Calhoun and Williams, it doesn't seem like that they thought they were going to be these, you know, college coaches for their career. They're both guys who started out coaching high school very successfully while also being teachers. And I, and I think they had the sense that that would be their life's work. Um, they had both of them had a fairly unique opportunity come available to them. In the case of Calhoun, he ran into a guy who was a prominent Northeastern alum when their job came open. In 1972, Northeastern went through three different head coaches. Um, they had a guy named uh, Dick Dukeshire, who's one of the great college division level coaches of all time, mm-hmm. who went to uh, went and coached the Greek national team. He got in contact with a guy from Brandeis who had some connections in Greece and became their national coach as they uh, pursued a, a bid in the 1972 Summer Olympics. He came back, he got sick. The guy who had been the interim coach was a guy named Jim Bowman uh, who took advantage of an opportunity to join the FBI. And so he left the program <laughs> too. So suddenly they, they were in the lurch for a head coach and um, they... They looked around for what they could get, and they they, they got the guy who was the hot young high school coach in Massachusetts game into a team that uh, only lost one game two years later in the old Tech tournament. They uh, they made mm-hmm. it to the semifinals, and um, Calhoun had built his reputation on that as a high school coach, had some background with college, a, a little bit as an assistant at AIC, which is where he'd gone to college. But this very unique set of circumstances brought him into college coaching. And he, he was at Northeastern for the next 14 years. In the case of Gary Williams, he was coaching high school ball in Camden, New Jersey, uh, which is right near where he grew up, right near Philadelphia. And um, a an old mentor of his from the University of Maryland, where he would played, Tom Davis, had just gotten the coaching job at Lafayette. And he invited him to come be his assistant, but it came with one catch. He had to be the soccer coach of the school, too. A swore that Gary Williams had never played. Um, if he wanted to become his assistant basketball coach, because the money in the Lafayette athletic budget was half for a basketball coach and half for a soccer coach. 
So in the fall, he coached soccer. And in the wintertime, he uh, he was the assistant basketball coach for a couple of years. Wow, that's incredible. And uh, Gary Williams, before he came to BC, he was at American University. He, uh, he had a pretty nice record there, 72 and 42. So he gets to BC. And what about Patino? Patino, I remember when they went to the tournament back in the early 80s there, I remember the TV stations covering that at length. What was uh, Patino's way of getting to Boston University? I think from the time Patino touched a basketball, he knew he wanted to be a basketball coach. I mean, he's he's a kid, he's five and six years old, and he's spending significant amount of time in the playgrounds and first in Queens and Cambria Heights and then on Long Island, just, just working on playing basketball. And he was a big-time high school basketball star on Long Island. Ends up at UMass, which... I think in many ways kind of humbled him because he was so used to being the big, the big star, the kid who could shoot the lights out of the gym. And he goes to Jack Lehman's program at UMass, which had a very ball control kind of offense. I mean, you'd had Julius Irving there right before he played there, but they're playing, they're playing a very old fashioned kind of Hank Iba offense. It's very much a controlling the ball kind of thing. And he becomes the, essentially the quarterback of that team. He's the guy who's, um, he's the guy who's the point guard in this team. He very rarely shoots. Um, they go on, they, they win two Yankee conference titles with Patino as their point guard. But in many ways, th- I think that kind of pushed him in the coaching direction more permanently because he didn't get, even in the age of the 10 round draft, he didn't get picked or anything. He hadn't really had a lot, a lot of opportunities to show off his, uh, offensive skill. So he immediately ends up becoming an assistant at the university of Hawaii. He's there for a couple of years. He's briefly the interim coach. He shows a particular acumen as a recruiter which helps him get involved with um, which, which I think really helps him make his name as a coach um, ends up hooking up with Jim Bayheim, becoming an assistant at Syracuse for a few years, just when Bayheim's getting things rolling there. I mean, their, their coaching staff was uh Bayheim, Bernie fine and Rick Patino. I mean, what a, wow. what an incredibly loaded lineup they had there uh, for coaches for a couple of years. Uh, I mean, guys like uh, uh, Roosevelt Bowie and Louis, Louis Orr and stuff are dudes that, uh, uh, Patino brings into Syracuse mm. and he's 20, 25 years old when he interviews for the BU job and Bayheim says to him, do not take this job. This is the worst job in the East. There's no support for those coaches whatsoever. They just have a handful of scholarships. They have no money to go recruiting. Patino goes in, does a, does a job interview. Convinces the AD to let him double number of athletic scholarships of all time the patino takes this goes into the school that has shown no commitment to basketball whatsoever it's a mm. hockey school and uh walks in and and has himself a budget has himself scholarships to build a program up and he hits the ground running they had to recruit they had to really pound the payment and recruit gary williams inherited a lot of great players from tom davis but uh i grew up in the boston area playing high school basketball and i remember the celtics during their heyday they were like the upper echelon but for me, being a, college, a high school basketball player and a college basketball fan, a lot of the players that played in Boston were like superstars to me when I was growing up. I mean, Perry Moss, Northeastern, uh, Jay Murphy, John Bagley, Michael Adams, Boston College, and then John Teague, who was at uh, Boston University, are all names that really personified uh, the grit and, and the perseverance of the players, but also Reggie Lewis, who Calhoun recruited, ended up being probably one of the better players. What did you find out about Reggie Lewis and the Jim Calhoun? Was there anything you found out about that? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. This is a guy who played so little in high school relative to a lot of these guys. He, he didn't. He wasn't even a starter on his high school basketball team at Dunbar, which may have been the greatest high school team in the country with 
with Reggie Williams and David Wingate and Muggsy Bogues and the like uh, on that roster, but he was obviously a very good scorer, and that was that was quite evident. The guy who really discovers Reggie Lewis up there is Carl Fogel, who ends up being the guy who replaces Calhoun as the head coach, and I think is a very underappreciated figure himself. He got Northeastern to uh, two tournaments as a head coach. He'd he'd um, he'd been an assistant since the uh, late seventies there. Uh, having come from Curry College, where he'd been the coach for a couple years. And he says, Jim, we got to come look at this guy. So they drive down in a snowstorm to Pennsylvania, wow. find a tournament where it just so happens Wingate, David Wingate was starting ahead of him, fouled out. Reggie comes in and scores like 30 points in the second half. And they said, uh, this is our man. And everybody I talked to said the minute they got him on campus, they knew he was going to be a first-round pick in the NBA draft. His skill was just so evident. He just walked in and dominated everybody he played against. Just had such a smooth shot and played with such confidence. Despite being this real thin kid that people were, every team they played was just trying to beat the crap out of him all the time. And he just got up, he looked at him, then he went about his business. Um, just, just such a remarkable young man who persevered from such a young age. As a freshman, they went and they played at the Roberts Center against BC. BC beat, beat Northeastern every time in this year. They were often close games in these real horse races between these two teams running up and down the floor. But the home crowd at Roberts Center gave Reggie Lewis a standing ovation in the first time he ever played there as a freshman. He comes wow. up and scores 24 points. He's like 11 for 16 from the field or something insane like that. And the, the fans there knew that they were seeing something special that evening. Uh, full disclosure, uh, back from 89 to 1994, I was the PA announcer, basketball announcer for Northeastern basketball when Carl Folger was the coach. I did PA announcing for Northeastern, but he was a very, he's an overlooked coach as well as Mike Jarvis of Boston University. But uh, it's interesting, Reggie Lewis's influence after he left Northeastern was evident. Looking at some of the games at Northeastern at Matthews Arena, they were selling out those games for uh, Reggie Lewis. That's incredible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, going from, I mean, the transition from the college division to playing to playing at the university division, which becomes division one. I mean, it was tough to get fans in the building at Cabot. And then initially at, at Matthews too, just as they were trying to, to to make it their own space, having been the Boston arena previously. But once they get Andre LaFleur and Wes Fuller and Reggie mm -hmm. Lewis and that whole crew in there, it's a very exciting team that's tough to ignore. Uh, I mean, there was one instance in the very late 70s, just as they were moving into Matthews, where the Celtics played an old-timers charity game right before Northeastern played, I think. I think they played Maine in that game or something. And it was a full house for the Celtics old timers game. Then there were only like 400 people for the Northeastern game to watch a team that it, it ended up being the first really good of the Northeastern teams. It had, uh, I mean, you had like Bill Lochnane on that team and Chip Rucker and some other very fine players. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough for them to build a, an audience, but very quickly they became rock stars once that team started winning. I remember uh, when they played, no when Northeastern went to the tournament, that iconic photo, I think I've seen you uh, share it on Twitter with uh, Reggie Lewis sitting on the goal with NCAA bound. That's an iconic picture of when they made the NCAA tournament. Jim Calhoun really showed he could recruit, especially Reggie Lewis. There was a special connection between those two? It seems that way. I mean, just just. I, I had the, uh, the pleasure of being able to interview Coach Calhoun, and, and you could just tell it in his voice that there was mm. it was a particularly meaningful relationship they had. I, I think there was also the called childhood in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, and Calhoun in many ways did too, having lost his father at a very young age. And I think they could uh, they could relate on that level certainly. And I, I think with many of the players Calhoun had, 
Calhoun's a guy who certainly went through a lot of tough stuff as a very young person based on his own life experiences. Interesting. You know, Reggie Lewis, his, uh, looked at his stats getting ready for this. Freshman year, 17 points. Sophomore year, 24 points. Junior year, 23. And senior year, 23 points. And I always wonder how come he never got drafted earlier than the Celtics. I think he was like forgotten about. And it was the Celtics secret that they got him late in that round. And, you know, after winning, uh, you know, when they were in the playoff run there, but it's kind of like he was forgotten. And then like the Celtics knew all about him and they just, they drafted him. I thought that was after all these years, I think that could be like the only little secret that the uh, Celtics had, you know, they drafted Reggie Lewis because he was just in Boston. (laughs) Well, as recently, as soon as the end of his sophomore year, he was thinking about declaring for the NBA and he was graded as a first round pick at that point. So despite continuing to be such a great player, um, it's very odd that he was such a late pick. I mean, you look at a lot of the people who were picked ahead of him did not exactly have great careers. And then Reggie Lewis, of course, ends up being an all-star and the captain of the Celtics and everything. Hmm. I really can't imagine what a lot of those teams were looking at. So you interviewed... uh... You, know, uh, you said you interviewed Jim Calhoun. So you interviewed a lot of players. What was that like uh, interviewing the players as they discussed the coaches? You know, we see the persona of them on television, but what was the uh, the take from the players that you interviewed about the coaches behind the scenes? Because I always find that fascinating, that dynamic. What you see on TV is not always what you see in the locker room. One thing that is particularly striking about the BU guys, I mean, Patino's a very controversial figure. There's a lot of people who really don't like Rick Patino for a wide range of reasons. Every every guy I talk to who played for him wants to run through a brick wall for him to this day. Just the, the tightness of that BU team is just so striking, and the degree to which they care about each other and care for Patino to this day is, is remarkable. I mean, to, to a man, they were vouching for him completely and felt like he completely remade their program and remade them all personally. I mean, they had all he had put them put them all through the fire for that team running running five miles a day in the snow and then coming in and doing the, the famous brick drills where guys are going back and forth with bricks tied to their hands. Um, it, it was almost like they'd been through boot camp together and this, and this, this was their general. I mean, and, and I, I think also behind the scenes, Patino seems like he was a very caring guy who did a lot for his players too. Um, I mean, notably Arturo Brown, the player who very tragically died um, playing, playing for BU uh, in the, in the fall of 1982 during a, uh, during a pickup game before the season, uh, Patino very quietly helped help support his family for some time, as did some of the other businesses. And T. T. Anthony's Pizza Place um, was was supportive of Arturo Brown's family too. So they developed a very close net close close knit network over there around the program during uh, Patino's time, and it's very similar circumstances at the at the other places too. I mean, the players who played for Calhoun, particularly in the '80s, I would say, really had had such such remarkable esteem for him. Uh, coming in early on, I think there was a bit of an issue that he was such a young coach. Mm-hmm. Um, the coaches have been so respected and successful at Northeastern in the 60s and 70s. Um, the Dick Dukeshire era, the guys who had played for him, they they said, who's this kind of boy coach coming in trying to trying to tell us how to run our program a little bit. But very quickly, they got past that and ended up ended up becoming a very successful program. Uh, in terms of BC, I, Gary Williams was just so radically different than Tom Davis, even though he was a protege of his um gary williams was a bc assistant for one season in 77 78 before he went on to america and had a lot mm-hmm. of success there so none of the guys who were there in 82 when he takes over are, are guys who knew gary williams who were, were really familiar with him and you have this very low-key laconic midwestern guy in tom davis and then there's gary williams who's 
sweating through a suit <laughs> before the, the game starts, stomps around, pencils, and uh, and and it really could could build guys up and get them ready to go out and do remarkable things on on his on on the team's behalf. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Gary Williams. I'm a graduate of the University of Maryland, 1988 graduate, and uh, I was thrilled when they hired him in eight, 1989, uh, wearing my Maryland uh, national championship hat. And uh, today, June 19th, is the date of uh, Len Bias passing away tragically, 37 years ago. And I, you know, all these coaching stops that Gary Williams had, uh, you know, before Maryland, I think that helped him as he, you know, went through the ACC when he was at Maryland getting that national championship, he picked the Maryland program up from the ashes after the Len Bias uh, death, you know, 16 years after Len Bias died, they won the national championship. So he was definitely, uh, you could see a lot of the stuff he did at BC. He definitely saw it at Maryland as well. Oh, I, I have such esteem for the way he recruited too. He didn't fool around with the AAU guys. He didn't have any time for any of that, any of that kind of stuff. He, he said, there's plenty of talent in our backyard. Get a bunch of guys from Maryland and Virginia and D.C. and we'll win. Like, you look mm-hmm. at those championship teams. It's all local guys he builds his team around. Uh, he didn't necessarily get all these McDonald All-Americans. In fact, I believe there was not one McDonald All-American on the national championship team. It wasn't. He just got kids that were winners. And and, and, they, and they had a system in place, and, and, and they got the job done. Um, and I think all, the other thing is Maryland had all kinds of um, – all kinds of penalties when he came in too. In addition to the Len Bias stuff, there was the recruiting violations during the uh, the Bob Wade era that just right. incredibly hamstrung him. They were walking into just the land of the giants and and very quickly asserted themselves to be one of them, considering the circumstances they had, losing scholarships, not being able to play on television. Um, it's it's it, I think it's one of the great reclamation projects in the history of college basketball. Yeah, and uh, when he was at Boston College, you know he inherited a lot of great players from Tom Davis. But some of those players on that team, Jay Murphy, John Bagley, Michael Adams, they were like superstars in Boston. I, I, I say that. I mean, they were just like rock stars in college, you know, in the Boston area because they were just formidable basketball players. And, uh, you know, you had the Celtics. So um, one thing that uh, did the Celtics and some of these coaches and player or players ever cross paths with each other? I always find that uh, interesting, you know, with the proximity of all those programs and the Celtics. Oh, I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but there's a whole section All in the right, book good. about that All because right. the the best basketball in Boston for a time was played <laughs> at September in the Roberts Center. Right. That's where all of the great the, that Celtics were there, great BC players, BU, Northeastern. It was just a cauldron of great basketball. Guys from other NBA teams. It was just insane for that month month or so between the start of school and the start of basketball, just to pick up games that were happening there on a regular basis. Oh, had I a lot of great conversations that. about that with guys from the That's different awesome. teams. That's awesome. When you look back at their coaching styles, who was the, if they had, was there anything that there was different about uh, the three of them? Cause I always figured they always had a pressing defense. They're always intense on the sidelines. Were they kind of similar when they were in their coaching styles? I, I think there was a great deal of same. I, I'd have to think about how to differentiate them, but I think in many ways this this relentlessness is something they all share as coaches. I think may, it may be odd to say, but Calhoun might be a little more relaxed than the other two. Um, I, I think Calhoun strikes me as being more, a little bit more, I guess, a student of psychology. I would say in terms of dealing with his players. I mean, he's always kind of kind of had an acerbic presentation, but I think he may have been a little bit less. Um, 
always ready to run through the wall personality wise than the other guys were. And I think also maybe more attuned to adjusting to uh, the players on his team. I mean, it seems like for, for one thing, considering some of the dynamics on Calhoun's team in the seventies, he proved to be a fairly good diplomat because you had all the, the, the Northeastern teams of the sixties were largely kids from like blue collar Irish kids from like the entering suburbs of Boston. Mm-hmm. These are kids from like, you know, Medford and Somerville and and places like that who are, who are commuting to college and playing college basketball. These are not highly recruited players. They're tough kids who are awesome at playing in a system. Suddenly Calhoun has this team in division one. He's going all over the place to recruit people in particular to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. They did a great job making connections out there and bringing a lot of good players in from there later on, bring a lot of great players in from Maryland and DC in the DC area. Mm-hmm. But by recruit, by, by having a broader net, he's bringing in a, a more talented potential, faster players who are more diverse, uh, certainly than 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 the players that Northeastern had in the '60s and early '70s generally. So there's a bit of a culture conflict on the team in the '70s, and I go into that in greater detail in the book. But Calhoun really did a nice job negotiating, essentially, this college division group of guys and this new like Division One oh. group of guys who end up being on the Northeastern team this time period. Wow, you know, and uh, I did some a little bit more research. I when I was uh, getting ready there, uh, you know, I would look back there. Uh, Jack Rennell, who used to be the SID at Northeastern, he, uh, I love the old. You can find him on the internet when they actually type the uh, SID information. And there was a story mm-hmm. on Perry Moss, and he wasn't even recruited out of high school. And Calhoun just saw something in him, and he ended up playing in the NBA. So that just shows you Calhoun saw something in players. Oh, and when he was on the Seventy Sixers. They had a jumping competition, and he he was the best leaper on the 76ers team that included Barkley, and I think Moses Malone would have been there at that point. I mean, <laughs> he was just – he was like the best athlete among that – really a remarkable group. Incredible. And when I was looking at the BU rosters from early in the 80s, I noticed the name Brett Brown, the NBA coach who used to be the head coach of the 76ers. He played for Rick Pitino. Oh, yeah. Brett, Brett Brown was an excellent point guard for BU. Incredibly fast. One of the fastest from line to line guys anybody ever saw. He came out of South Portland, Maine. His dad, Bob Brown, ends up being the BU coach for a little while. Coached very successful at St. Anselm's in the Division II level for quite a while. It was, it was a Patino assistant for a while, too. When Patino went up to Portland and saw Brett Brown, he's like, I like his dad as much as I like him. And two years later, Bob Brown ends up coming on board as an assistant coach for them as well. So he ended up getting two in that package. That's one thing. Well, Patino recruited a lot of kind of unusual places, too. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of people going up to New Hampshire and Maine and recruiting, and he got several good players out of those area. He also went up to Canada and got some good players. He got a guy named Tony Sims, who ended up being the best right. player on Canada's 1984 Olympic team. He got a guy named Peter Gabriel, who was a very good defensive player for BU in the late 80s, too. So he was he was able to go up and find people in places that, were, that weren't being very heavily recruited at the time. I mean, this kid, Peter Gabriel, who I, I had a great conversation with him for the book in Canada, he was averaging 20 and 20 uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, and he didn't get one look from any American team. He kind of mm. had to go seek it out himself and somehow en- ended up getting in touch with Patino and getting a scholarship there and being a very productive player at BU in the latter half of the 80s, particularly during the Mike Jarvis era. That's incredible. Um, when you speak of uh, Boston University, Mike Jarvis uh, coached uh, BU as well. Um, he was the coach for Patrick Ewing at Cambridge Ridge in Latin uh, when they won the state championship. So Mike Jarvis uh, had a great career as well. He's 
he's another one of those folks in Boston that got their start. Yes, I, I make the argument in the book that Mike Jarvis belongs in the Basketball Hall of Fame alongside these other guys. If you take the sum total of his career, I think he makes a unique contribution to the game. Not only does he coach three different schools to the NCAA tournament with BU and George Washington and, and St. John's, two of whom he gets to the Sweet 16. He even gets St. John's to the, to the Elite Eight even. Um, but I think particularly his work with Patrick Ewing at Cambridge Ringe and Latin, he's one of the first coaches to go out there and really, um, I guess, uh, go against the tide of coaches from all over the country just pestering players constantly. He set up a very clear set of rules. If you want to recruit Patrick, you need to follow this set of guidelines. If you break any of these rules, you're out of the running. So he was a fantastic advocate for Ewing's interest. Wow. Ewing is a recent immigrant from Jamaica. He's got a family that's just adjusting to the United States. And he's going out there and putting the interest of his players ahead of all of the hoopla, the hundreds of schools. And, and and created, I think, a very clear set of guidelines for how to protect a player with all these different schools pursuing them. There are a lot more rules in place now in terms of how schools contact people. But back in the day, schools would be calling homes day and night and just pestering the heck out of families and disrupt, disrupting their lives. Mike Jarvis made sure that didn't happen to his players. Uh, so, so not only for his great success as a, a high school coach, one of the great high school coaches of all time, highly successful college coach, but his advocacy on behalf of players for protecting their interest to student athletes. I think the sum total of that to me strikes me as a hall of fame worthy contribution. Yeah. And I remember the BU Northeastern games when I was the PA announcer on the sideline there between the two coaches, that was a very intense series back in the eighties. I'm sure it still is now, but BU and Northeastern is uh, it doesn't get any more intense than that. Back in the, back in the eighties, I remember them, the coaches going at it and, uh, Carl Fogel was intense as well. And Michael, Mike Jarvis, he was pretty much, uh, he was pretty much like a gentleman on the uh, sidelines from what I remember. Uh, he was, uh, he was a tremendous coach. So, you know, when I looked at the, when I'm getting ready for the, when I was uh, getting ready for this, I went back, uh, back in the late eighties and into the nineties, BU played two games at the old Boston garden. Uh, went for those games, one against Michigan and one against Gary Williams led Maryland team. So BU was able to get 10,000 in those uh, in the old Boston Garden back in the 89-90 season. That's incredible because I think that's some of what the foundation that Patino laid in the early 80s. Absolutely. I mean, Patino was very good in getting very good at going out and getting games for BU. From the outside, he's he has them playing at UCLA, they're playing at Southern Cal, Iowa, LSU. Um they they would have these kind of buy games that they would basically they knew they were going to lose them, but but they knew it'd be good experience in terms of getting ready for conference play. So on a number of occasions, they went out and got just hammered at against these elite pro- programs, playing at Poly Pavilion or playing down at LSU and all these places. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also the one who en- ends up getting them into these other venues, like playing in the Boston Garden too. The year the year that he leaves, he leaves right at, after the '83 season to go become an assistant with Hubie Brown with the Knicks. He'd scheduled a game with UNC for the next year at the Boston Garden, which they ended up getting shellacked in. It's John Kuster's the head coach for two years before he went on to George Washington himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they played they played a couple of other games at the Garden in the mid '80s as well. I think I think one was against Wake Forest, maybe, mm-hmm. and another one was against Iowa. I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting he it, it's really the momentum Patino gets going for the program that gets them playing in these high profile venues against high profile opponents. Yeah, you're correct. And I did uh, January 30th, 1981, BC played BU at the Garden. It was Tom Davis versus Patino. BC won by five, 57 52. 
And then just some other games that uh, they played. Uh, Williams, it uh, looks like Williams faced Calhoun three times and Gary Williams won all three against from BC beating Northeastern uh, during their stays in Boston. I find that, you know, incredible when you see him later on in their careers, when they're going to the final fours and they're winning national championships, it's pretty awesome when you see where they came from to where they are now, all Hall of Fame coaches. Uh, it's incredible. You see what they did later in their career is what they did earlier in their career. Yeah, certainly. Cal- Calhoun certainly never forgave, B- forgave BC. I mean, in 86, when there was an opening, he was considered for the job. They ended up going with Jim O'Brien, who it took mm. him a little while, but eventually got things going on. Not to the level Calhoun did, certainly. But Calhoun didn't lose a game to BC for like 20 years or something. After <laughs> after t- I think it was like 2005 was the first time he lost to BC after he took over from UConn in 86, he just dominated them. Like there's a game in the seventies where Northeastern went up and played at, at played at Manly Fieldhouse against Syracuse, their old home and Syracuse ran it up against them. And Calhoun gets up in Bayheim's face and he's like, I'm never going to forgive you for this. He's this guy coaching little Northeastern going and wagging his finger at Bayheim, And he never did. I mean, he really often got the best of Bayheim in the, uh, in the big East. So uh, uh, Calhoun was not one to forget. Yeah, what about um, was there anything that you a couple of nuggets that you found you found out that you didn't know while you're researching the book that you know said wow this is really really something that really pe- people need to know when you wrote the book. Oh, I think there's hundreds of things like that. I mean, I oh, had yeah, I, I'm I'm you know I'm also I'm only 41 years old, so I'm a little younger. Remember this this era very well. So this is all something in retrospect for me. Uh, I mean, the stuff the stuff I go into in the section about the uh, the Roberts Center with all the Celtics playing there and stuff was is pretty remarkable. I had no idea that was going on. Mm. I, I think also the legacy of Northeastern basketball in the 60s, which is incredibly impressive, I didn't know much about either. I mean, they were one of the best Division II slash college division programs in the country. And one of the real pleasures of researching the book was talking to a lot of the players from that era and getting a real feel, feel for how much tradition they had and how much it meant to so many people. And in spite of it being a commuter campus, which makes it very tough to draw an audience, they had very good crowds at Cabot throughout the 1960s, very loyal fan base in an area that's very tough to find parking. I mean, you yes. really had to want to go to a Northeastern basketball game to to, to, to go to games at Cabot. And the fact that they were drawing two, 3,000 people to those games was incredibly impressive. So I, to me, particularly getting to know those Dukeshire era Northeastern guys is one of the great pleasures of the book for me. I can attest to that. I was a P when I was a PA announcer, I, I was lucky. I got a parking pass, but there was no parking at Matthews arena, no parking. So I can down right off uh, Huntington Avenue. So, um, you know, going back to BC a little bit, uh, they had, they had some really, uh, you know, tremendous players like John Garris, Jay Murphy, Michael Adams in 82, 83, they were averaging, get this. And you probably saw this 19 points for John Garris, 17 points per game, Jay Murphy and Michael Adams, 16. I'm telling you, these guys were like superstar all-stars for a high school kid. Like you realize all those dudes are from Connecticut too. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I I know Jay Murphy built Kevin Mackey in particular. It was such a character. Uh, who who was the uh, big recruiter for BC in that era, goes on, coaches at Cleveland State, scores one of the first Cinderella upsets in the history oh, of the yeah. tournament when they beat the season-on-the-brink Indiana Hoosiers. Mackey was was such a pleasure to talk to, and what, we went into all the different recruiting battles, and Murphy, Garris, Adams, and Bagley are all Connecticut guys. Five, ten years later, those would have been Calhoun, Calhoun recruits almost certainly. 
But um, he Mackey was really had a very good rapport with young players. He'd been a high school coach, um, and I, I think and really just scoured blacktops and arenas across New England, looking in the Northeast, looking for players. And he had a real knack for having a rapport with uh, with 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 young men, and and brought so many fine players to the program, especially this Connecticut connection BC developed in the Davis and Williams eras. Yeah, uh, you know Gary Williams definitely. Uh had some good players as well. You know, when Roger McCready, Dominic Presley, Stu Primus, um, these, these guys were just like, you know, you looked up at them and, you know, like for the uh, Northeastern, Wes Fuller, Andre LaFleur, Quinton Dale, Kevin McDuffie, Mark Halsell was another great player. You know, when I was looking up, I forgot about him. And then Dave Litteo, who was, uh, he was also a coach at Northeastern. And didn't he, um, he was also head coach at DePaul, if I remember correctly. He played for DePaul. Uh, DePaul. He was a head coach at DePaul twice. Yeah, twice. I mean, Dave Lato has gone and had a great, had a great career. Northeastern had the knack for getting all these kind of six five, six six, six seven guys who all ran like thoroughbreds. Like they were, they were guys who maybe a little small to be big men, a little higher level of Division One basketball. But at that level, they just couldn't stop these. Whether it was Halsell or Lato or Eric Jefferson, Chip Rucker, they just had all these guys who just were just tanks running up and down the floor. I mean, just talking to a lot of these, 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 these teams, it's they, they describe playing the, the big bad Huskies of the eighties. Like it was like playing the Pistons. Like they were in, in, in the late 80s. They're incredibly intimidated by these guys. I mean, some of these guys like Halsell almost seemed like proto Rick Mahorns, the way their, their opponents talked about them. They just, they had those, they had those, they, they had those red, they had those red and black uniforms that came out and they were a very intimidating bunch. I mean, one of the, one of the guys, uh, one of the reporters from Buffalo covered uh, Canisius and Niagara. He said they were the he said they were the Oakland Raiders of the NAC. He called them. Mark Halsell, I remember. I, I forgot about his name when I was looking, and he was a tremendous college basketball player. It's amazing that these players, you know, uh, Rick Pitino, he had a saying: the hardest working coach for the hardest working team in the country, and uh, that's personified. And another quote from Gary Williams at his press conference at BC, we don't play as much drop back zone as Tom, and we may have three or four pressing defenses. And we always know that uh, Calhoun was always a tough coach. And uh, when he won those UConn national championships, that was, uh, that was quite awesome to see. One thing that's remarkable talking to these guys, they would, they would see, you know, they'd see Campbell Walker or, um, you know, the different guys from those, those championship teams, uh, and they would say, "Oh, he reminds me just like this particular guy from Northeastern or that guy." Wow! And 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 Calhoun would always talk about like the names of these Northeastern guys were well known to the guys who played for him at UConn because he would just describe things. This is how Mark Halsell will do it. This is how Chip Rucker would do it. This is how Andre Lafleur would do it. This is how Perry Moss or Pete Harris would do it. And the, the those names became almost like um they were like figures from fairy tales to the guys at UConn. Because he, because that was his, those were his metaphors for talking about how the game was played. Wow. That's incredible. So the coaches, uh, when you look back, um, so what do you think, how do you think they think they reflect Rick Pitino's coaching St. John's now, Gary Williams is retired as is Jim Calhoun. What do you, how do you think they view their careers and um, did they like each other? You think, or did they respect each other? How would you personify their relationships? That's probably in the book too. So. Um, well, I, I would say during the time Calhoun and Patino were no fans of each other. Certainly, I mean they they talked about they'd be running, you know, you know running past each other on the, along the Charles River, and they kind of like not really <laughs> acknowledge each other 
when they were running. I mean, I think there was a mutual respect there, but there was there was real intensity to that rivalry. I think they've also both they both had a little bit different relationship with 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 Williams at BC. I think that was that was probably more more collegial because they also weren't in the same league uh, too. I mean, the Northeastern BU rivalry was so intense, and the BC thing was a little bit different. I mean, they both played BC a little bit. Northeastern played them a little bit more. I, th- I think as much as anything, Northeastern viewed BC as a measuring stick in this time period. If we can get past them in the Big East, that will really get us to the big time. It didn't quite happen, though. They, they, they didn't actually end up beating BC during this time period. The thing is, once they started playing BC really close, BC stopped scheduling them. In 80, after 84, they had a real scare in 84. They didn't play again until, like, 2003 or something. Wow. So, like, BC, like, we don't want to lose this crosstown game, so... They certainly put the scare in BC, so they avoided them for quite a while. Yeah, and uh, I wonder, you know, they, they, I know that uh, I'll, I'll have to go back and look at the years that they coached at the, you know, UConn, Maryland, and Kentucky, and Louisville. You know, they probably crossed paths many times. I wonder how they viewed their time, you know, as they were in Boston. I found that incredible. Uh, I also find incredible. Well, that- the one thing that's one, one aspect of that is they've all written memoirs. None of them talk much about Boston. I mean, Calhoun gives it two chapters. Um, Patino gives it like four pages. Williams gives it like six pages. I mean, for such an interesting time period, they really don't cover it that much. I mean, part of the thing is, I, I with Calhoun's book, I think you would have talked about more Northeastern more, but the book was explicitly like about the path to the national championship kind of thing. So it was very much a Connecticut-specific book. Um, whereas the other two, it's just they chose not to talk about it that much. Um, interesting, interesting. So, so the book here. What uh, what else? Uh, what other nugget can you uh, can you uh, give us here on the podcast here? So, but I cannot wait to read the book. What uh, what's one nugget that you could give somebody just to tease the book when they read it? You will find out a lot of the strategic language of the different teams. So, if you're interested in presenting presenting. Uh, I guess the language of college basketball tactics. There's a lot of language like that in here. I, I, I tried to I tried to get not too um, not too technical and in the weeds with that, but I I, th- I think if, if that's the kind of thing you're looking for, and I think I think there's a certain audience for that. I hope there is at least. There's a lot about the particulars of tactics of different teams in the book, more so than most um, basketball biographies I've read, and I've read quite a few. Well, I am going to, uh, I cannot wait. It's going to bring back a lot of memories of the early 80s. And you can order this book, Boston Ball. You can pre-order it and save 40% with the code 6FWC23. And it's bit.ly front slash Boston Ball. Easy to order, Clayton. When does the book come out? Uh, I can't wait. Thank you so much. November 1st. Yeah, pre-order now. Give yourself a present that's going to arrive in several months. Absolutely. And you'll love the front cover, Patino, Williams, and Calhoun on it. You, you will not be uh, disappointed on this cover and the book. I cannot wait to uh, get it. Clayton, uh, I hope to get you back on again. I got the Loserville book. I will have you back on for that. Maybe in November, I can get you back on when the book is out. We can uh, maybe talk about some other things. So um, I want to thank you very much for coming on my podcast. It's truly an honor that you came on. Rob, It's it's been a pleasure. Please have me anytime, morning, noon, or night. I, I love coming on, love talking college basketball, happy to talk any sports, and happy to talk Loserville, 